You're listening to episode 51 with Larry Schooler, Director of Consensus Building and Community Engagement at CDNP. This is part one of an amazing two-part conversation, and this episode is brought to you by WaterNow Alliance. Hi, this is Cynthia Kohler, Executive Director for the WaterNow Alliance. This is the podcast that is demonstrating the power of communication and collaboration in the water sector. It's water in real life with my friends, the H2 duo, Stephanie Zavala and Ariane Shipley. WaterNow Alliance believes that local leaders hold the keys to our water future. WaterNow is a nonprofit network of over 400 city council members, mayors, water district board members, and utility managers nationwide supporting sustainable, affordable, and community-based solutions to water challenges. WaterNow is a forum for collaborative action and a network for local leaders to learn from each other and connect with innovation. WaterNow provides resources, tools, training, project and policy support, and case studies advancing sustainable water strategies. Its newest initiative is Tap into Resilience, a campaign to accelerate adoption of green infrastructure, efficiency, and other on-site water solutions. So join this unique network of local decision makers leading the way to a healthy and resilient water future for their communities. Visit waternow.org forward slash join or email info at waternow.org. Membership is free and open to decision makers responsible for everything from policy to programs to rates and who are the leading edge for all things water. Only ask about those things where you really think there's a chance that you would be influenced by what the public ends up telling you um, and be able to demonstrate. I mean, I think it's key be able to close that feedback loop for them and demonstrate you said this and we did this as a result of your telling us this. I would rather you not do public engagement than do it and not use the information you gain from it. That is a quote from our friend, Dr. Larry Schooler. When we chatted with him, he was schooling us with so many insights that we just couldn't stop talking. So we're breaking this one up into two episodes. Today, we're dropping part one, where we discuss how important your mindset is when developing your public engagement strategy. Yes, a little open-mindedness goes a long way. We also talk about the ways Larry gets people over some of those common hurdles of the fear of public engagement, plus his tip on how to diffuse a situation at a public meeting where you feel a little uncomfortable. Larry reminds us not to assume just because no one shows up to your public meeting that everything's fine. It's fine. It's not fine. Plus, we loved this metaphor that when it comes to communication, you should ask yourself if if you'd rather have a preventative care visit or a trip to the emergency room. Dr. Larry Schooler is a father of two and husband of one. He is also a mediator, facilitator, consensus builder, and public engagement consultant. He spent eight years developing and overseeing the public engagement division for the city of Austin, one of the first of its kind in the country. He is now director of consensus building and community engagement at CDNP, a Texas-based consulting firm. He's also a senior fellow at the National Civic League and the Strauss Institute for Civic Life at the University of Texas. Larry is also a subject matter advisor for 100 Resilient Cities. He divides his time between Texas and Florida and enjoys long walks on the beach, long runs on marathon courses, playing the piano, and rooting for Houston sports teams. His first book on public engagement in truth and reconciliation and how the public can help resolve big conflicts is due out later this year. So without further ado, let's get to the show. When we spoke last, you talked about finding your tribe and that word especially 100% resonates with us. So tell us about your tribe and what it meant for you to find it. 
you know, part of part of the quirkiness of my work, both now and when I first got into it, is that I, I didn't even really know that this was a thing. Um, in 2009, when I initially got this job, I mean, I had been doing basically a lot of, you know, sort of facilitation and what I would call shuttle diplomacy, really, for an elected official in Austin. And this whole idea that there could be something called public engagement, that there was a sort of method behind what I felt was sort of the madness of working with the public mm -hmm. um, was a totally foreign concept. And so my boss um, said, go to this conference. And it was the International Association for Public Participation, or IAP2, San Diego, I want to say September 2009. And I mean, I can, I can still describe to you the ballroom. Like it was just mm -hmm. one of those moments, like right. you're just, you're sitting there and you're just thinking like, you know, finally, uh, I have my people and don't get me wrong. I mean, I had gone to, I had gone to like when I was with NPR, like I would go to some public radio conferences and journalism conferences. And a lot of times you feel at least at that time in my life, you know, some kinship there. Mm -hmm. um, but this is, it is so different because it's such a misunderstood or under understood or not understood um, thing that to be in a room with people who have some of the shorthand, you know, and the jargon and sort of the, I love public meetings kind of vibe um, <laughs> is, is so uncommon that, uh, you know, it, it became a, a really irresistible kind of force in my life. I mean, so much so that I ended up getting really involved with IP too. So, yeah. um, but I, I, I just want to emphasize, I guess, that it doesn't have to come in the form of a, like a professional association and a conference and a, you know, expensive kind of time consuming thing. You know, a lot of times, I mean, especially with the advent of, of sort of the meetups and the reddits of the world, you know, we can we can find our tribe in ways that don't, you know, require getting on an airplane or going spending a few days at a conference or joining a formal organization. Um, but I, I do think that when it comes to this particular work, um, it's been especially rewarding to be in, in those kinds of settings because a lot of times people who do this work are either sole practitioners or like me, they were one of a very small number of people in a big organization that, you know, know about this stuff or think about it in any detail or dream about it in their sleep. So, um, so it was great to meet other people like that. Yeah. Well, we have giant smiles on our faces because we can, that we can, Totally understand. Totally that. understand yeah. that 100%. That's how we feel about the work that we're doing and the mm -hmm. people that we're lucky enough to do it. So when you said that, that we really lit up when you said that, because it's exciting to hear other people talk about finding, uh, finding their tribe. So, For sure. Um, well, I was fortunate to work with you when you facilitated some meetings for the city of Fort Worth water department regarding moving to a permanent twice per week watering restrictions. Um, why do you think it's so important for government, especially water utilities, who typically are always behind the scenes, to engage in that kind of public engagement? So I feel like there's kind of a couple of different ways to come at that question. I mean, one is that I've just got this kind of operating principle that people who are affected by a decision ought to be able to affect that decision. And notice I didn't say like voters affected by or mm -hmm. citizens or people who pay taxes. You know, I mean, I'm not, I'm not even restricting it to public agencies. I mean, frankly, some of what I think we've seen in recent years is that the private corporations have gotten themselves into tough situations 
when they've made decisions that their employees can't get behind um, that, that weren't involved in. Um, And so I think there's, there's that, I mean, there's kind of the, the value associated with just participatory democracy and the idea that if you're going to ask me to do something to change my uh, habits or to pay more for something as in the case of a tax increase or a bond or something like that, uh, or you're going to change the terms of the relationship we have as as citizen and government, meaning like a charter amendment or a constitutional revision or whatever. Um, I, I just, you know, I think the outcomes are a lot better when um, the folks affected by a decision get a chance to affect it. Um, but from the standpoint of a utility, uh, or for that matter, any agency, I mean, I, I sometimes use the metaphor of going to a primary care physician for a regular checkup as compared to going to the emergency room. Yeah. You know, a lot of times the, 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 the urgency to go to the doctor when you're otherwise healthy or not super sick is pretty low. You're like, right. why do I need to waste the time, the waiting rooms, whatever. Um, but we all know for those of us who are lucky to have ever been covered by health insurance, um, that's a pretty cheap and easy uh, way to address your health, um, whatever that situation may be, as compared to um, going to the hospital, which we know is is extremely time consuming and usually extremely expensive and, and often pretty traumatic. Um, public agencies, a lot of times, and we can talk about more examples of this later on, often find themselves going to the metaphorical emergency room. And that can look a lot of different ways. That can be a uh, petition drive that leads to a ballot measure to reverse or repeal or overturn what elected officials have said they want to do, or, or unelected officials for that matter have said they want to do. That can be a recall election. That can be a lawsuit. That can be people standing in the street and expending a lot of police and public safety overtime to deal with that. I mean, there's a lot of different ways that that can manifest itself, um, but the ultimate outcome ends up being that the agency spends a lot of money and usually a lot of political capital and a lot of energy and effort to clean up a mess, um, to go to the emergency room and clean up a mess as opposed to getting in front of it and, you know, doing not necessarily totally preventative care, but certainly something that um, is more like going to the primary care doctor than going to the emergency room. So, I mean, I can also talk about the impact it can have on a, on a elected officials reelection um, the impact that it can have on people's desire to keep living in a place. You know, I think that the, yeah. the, the, the benefits of this can manifest itself in a lot of different ways, uh, many of which may not be that consequential to that frontline government worker or even utility uh, executive, um, but, but still matter and matter sometimes to people that are their bosses. And so I, I just think that there's kind of the, the normative principle and value around just letting people have a say in something that's going to affect them, which is a good thing for our entire lives, frankly. And then the, the more kind of cut and dry, uh, down and dirty version, which is, um, you're probably going to save a bunch of money and you're probably going to have a lot more satisfied, um, community members when you do it that way. Yeah. I think that's like my new favorite metaphor for mm-hmm. it because yeah. we talk a lot about proactive, consistent communication and the value of that. But yeah, it really is like a primary care versus mm-hmm. an emergency situation. Well, and, and, you know, one of the things that is, I think, jarring about 
just to go back into the metaphor for a second, jarring about the emergency room is you don't know the doctor, you don't know the nurse. You may have been at that hospital before because, mm. you know, whatever, but it's a lot of people you don't know. The primary care physician, you know. Yeah. Well, to put that back on a utility or a government agency, if the first time I'm hearing from you is to tell me not to drink the water, mm. um, see Texas comma Austin, October, 2018, Hello. Um, you know, um, yeah. that's, that's totally different than, oh, I was just at a community meeting, you know, two weeks ago and they told us that there's a situation and we need to be aware of it. And this is my elected official telling me that I've known since she or he got elected, you know, years ago or whatever. So, um, we're, we're talking about, I think first and foremost, the abstract concept of trust building and the more concrete concept of relationship building, mm -hmm. which we all know is important in any form of communication, but particularly when we're trying to get the community to understand and perhaps uh, be a part of a tough uh, fix to a problem. Nice. I'm slow clapping that. I know. I love it. <laughs> I love it. So in a presentation you gave to city council around that same time, you said, I would rather you not do public engagement than do it and not use any information you got from it. What are some examples you've seen in your work where organizations have really nailed this and truly made public engagement efforts uh, a collaboration? Yeah, so I'm, I'm going to be careful with this one not to talk just about examples from Austin because uh, that would be way too... No, you can be anonymous. That would be super Austin-y to a, talk about Austin as being great, but also to pretend like nothing great is going on. So I actually would say at the outset that, that people really ought to check out what's called the core value awards that are given by IAP2. And Ooh. I can send a link um, yes. that you guys yes. can put in the notes or whatever, because um, first of all, a lot of the best practice is actually coming from Australia and Canada, um, okay. wow. uh, partly because of the, the frameworks there around what you have to do with, when it comes to involving the public, which are certainly less of a big deal here and sometimes just absent. Um, but also just, I think that, you know, those are two um, nations that have just generally embraced this concept for years, if not decades longer than, than the United States has. So, so that's point number one. Um, and there are other kind of collections of, of what I'll call best practices that are easy to find for free. You don't have to be a member of anything. You don't have to be a member of IEP2, by the way, to look at those award winners. Um, but I'll, I'll, like I said, I'll send you guys some, some links there. I, I wanted to spotlight one particular process that I thought, well, I'm going to do two actually, that I thought um, were reflections of really truly incorporating what the public wanted. So, you know, Stephanie mentioned the water restrictions in Fort Worth. So actually, that was preceded, if I'm not mistaken, by a similar process in Austin with the Austin Water Utility. And yes. I, I specifically remember not really the, I mean, I'm not going to go into like the specifics of how we engaged in that particular process so much as just to say that there were some people very uneasy with the ultimate recommendations the utility made to council on that front. Um, but I do remember one in particular going to the council and basically saying, I'm willing to support this because the process was fair. You know, I could see that you allowed all of the different perspectives to be heard, whether it be environmental activists or car wash operators or irrigators or just homeowners or whatever. Um, he's like, I could, I could tell that all of those perspectives were being heated. And so even if you're not delivering kind of the perfect solution for me in my particular vantage point, I'm not going to make a big fuss because you did what 
you, you did what you should based on what you heard and what you, you, you had a fair process to get to that place. Wow. That's um, awesome. The, the other example though, that I was going to give was one in which I think the agency came from a, a much um, more forward thinking place in terms of action to, to handle a particular issue. So this is the, the uh, agency known as Austin resource recovery, which is essentially the, you know, recycling and trash part of, of our uh, city operations. And they, um, they really didn't know what to do about the fact that a lot of recyclable material was ending up in the landfill. Mm -hmm. And so they sort of put out this kind of generalized, like, what do we do? What do you think we should do? Kind of call, which netted over a thousand different ideas, which then sort of evolved into a few more concrete proposals. And I was lucky enough to get to host a, a televised town hall meeting on this where we got, you know, hundreds of people, um, uh, dialed in or, or connected to weigh in on the specific matter of would you pay X number of dollars more per month for more frequent recycling pickup or for curbside composting pickup. And they really, I mean, I, I, I know the folks involved and I know their decision-making process and they weren't committed to any particular outcome until all of that was done. Um, and I believe the net effect was to start curbside compost across the city, but to wait on, increasing the frequency of recycling. Um, so, I mean, the, the, the overarching points there really are go in with an open mind. Mm -hmm. Don't, don't begin a process having made decisions that you're then going to ask the public for input on. Yeah. You know, if, if it's not, it's not to say that you shouldn't have made any decisions. I mean, look, there are public safety and health and other considerations that you may not be willing to bend on full stop. Uh, or financial considerations that you can't bend on for any reason. That's totally fine and understandable. Let's just be transparent about that and say, yeah. we're not going to discuss that. Like if that's something you want to pursue, like, yes, go talk to city council or the legislature, but the parameters of this, this discussion are X and only ask about those things where you really think there's a chance that you would be influenced by what the public ends up telling you mm -hmm. um, and be able to demonstrate. I mean, I think it's key be able to close that feedback loop for them and demonstrate you said this and we did this as a result of your telling us this yeah. uh, so that they can understand where this came from, that it wasn't just a boardroom uh, where people just hatched these ideas, but in fact, something that they were influenced by the public in deciding. So um, like I said, I hate to give two Austin examples, but no. I, I do think that um, I do think that what, what really makes them stand out to me isn't so much the design of the public engagement, but simply the agency's willingness to kind of um, hold back until those processes ran their course, and then they could incorporate the findings, you know, meaningfully into their eventual decisions. Yeah, I was nodding a lot while you were telling that second story because um, I'm actually familiar with that yeah. because I was. Um, when we worked for another city, I w did a lot of work in the environmental services portion and they asked me to, to look at what Austin was doing. And I saw like all of that process that they went through and it was, incredible. it was incredible. I was so fired up. I wish you could have done something like that in the city, in the city that we were at, but I mean, um, wanted to have a public meeting just to host it that way. Like, it yeah. was so powerful. It's like, wow. Yeah. Well, and, and the thing that the, there's two things that I think made it stand out. One was the way that they attacked the question. Um, I think was, was sort of novel. Like they could have said sort of in a more generalized way, like we just want to get to zero waste or we just want to, 
you know, improve sustainability in Austin or something. But they were very concrete. I mean, they were they were presenting it from a data-based place that people could appreciate. Like, that's ridiculous that we're sending all this trash, uh, excuse me, recyclables to the landfill. Um, and then also, I think they really wanted people just to imagine a way to fix that. And I feel like a lot of times the public isn't, isn't asked something that basic. A lot of times the public is presented with a lot of technical information and expected to respond in a way that's hard for someone without the education and background to do. And so this was like so kind of bottom line in a way that it, I think helped a lot of people feel like the process was uh, accessible. Yeah. Yeah. And they really did their homework and understanding their audience, which I thought was amazing they, to really ask, why do you recycle? Why don't you recycle? Do you like, cause yeah. You know, when, when you're doing that work and you're passionate about it, you put these assumptions of what you think and feel yes. and, your, and your reasons on other people where there's some people who are like, that's not even on their radar, you know, sure. it's not because they're bad people. It's just because they just, it's not there yet. And so. Well, and that's a great, that's a great point for a couple of reasons. So the in-person meetings on the composting recycling topic were, were not well attended. I mean, I bet the, the most I got at any of the three or four of them was 20 people. Mm-hmm. Now I'm not, I'm not saying that to say it's bad or good. It just, that's, that's the way it was. Happened. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's pretty normal when it's not like an existential threat to your existence, you know, yeah. to your lifestyle or whatever. Yeah. Um, I mean, certainly we see meetings much better attended, but a lot of times they're because something has, has reached a, a boiling yeah. point. Mm-hmm. Um, but as a result, that was one of the reasons why I think the department bought into my suggestion to do something virtual because they mm-hmm. saw that, if they didn't, it was going to be hard for them to have uh, a meaningful, at least meaningful sample of public uh, information, public data to be able to make a decision, uh, much less kind of an iterative conversation. And back to your point about kind of getting people to walk in other shoes. I, I still remember one of the people who called into that meeting saying, like, we don't even have enough for the every two weeks pickup of recycling that you're doing now. So please mm-hmm. don't start picking up weekly because that doesn't make a lot of sense. Well, most of the environmental activists on that point, obviously were taking a a somewhat different, you know, kind of more recycling now kind of thing. And so not that either side is right or wrong, but I I just think it would have been hard for the agency to hear that had there not been other ways for people to give that kind of uh, input. Well, I have to give a shout out right quick. You would be very proud of Kathy Bailey, who is the executive director for the Greater Cincinnati Waterworks and the work that she's done on their lead pipe replacement program in Cincinnati. And I mean, she they met with 52 different community meetings and they took them their ideas and they would get their feedback and bring it back to the war room, if you will, and say, okay, they said this will work, this won't work. And they made those changes and came back. And exactly like you said, when, when they, when it got approved, it was like, well, of course it got approved. Like you guys, you guys, there was so much buy-in because they, they, they had built that trust and that relationship with the community and so I hope one day we get to master the meeting of you and Kathy because I think oh, that'd be great. I think yeah, that you would to. love her story. I sure would. Yeah, and you know I also think it's important to take as a cautionary tale the idea that not many people showing up at a meeting means that everything's cool. Um, oh gosh, which is you know something that I've I mean I've heard elected officials say something to that effect verbatim when I'm speaking like a Texas Municipal League or something. You know, like mm-hmm. well. We don't get a lot of people at such and such a hearing, so 
probably not a big Same. deal. We're, we're good. And, and there was actually, to the credit of everybody else there, uh, a collective laugh before I responded <laughs> to that question. So, um, I'm sure your face but, said it all. Like, yeah. Okay. Yeah. okay. <laughs> but, um, but I think that, uh, that that's especially important for utility to consider. Like you're going to get attendance when there's something really challenging going on. Yeah. Um, otherwise, you know, I like to tell people we have sort of metaphorical buckets of time in our lives. And I'm, I'm saying we like human beings, uh, you know, we work or we go to school. Um, we, you know, take it easy. And a lot of us have families and, and spend time with them. There's yeah. not a bucket for like going to public meetings. Like that doesn't exist. <laughs> there's not, you know, there's, there are definitely people who seem to, there's definitely people who seem to, who seem to make their living. Uh, you know, I call them super citizens. I've heard a lot of different other uh, terms for them, you know, who seem to make their living on going to these meetings. And, and it, to be serious, there certainly are people whose living includes going to some of these meetings for one reason or another. But in terms of, of an issue that I care about personally, you know, I'm not going to go to a public meeting, uh, that's scheduled at the usual kind of dinner time-ish time. Yeah. Unless there's just like some overwhelming reason that my physically being there would be important. Um, yeah. yeah. You know, and, and in fact, it's funny because down in Fort Lauderdale where we are now, there's a, there's a zoning land use kind of fight and we've got friends who have rescheduled on us a couple of times to go to a seven o'clock meeting on that particular wow. topic. And up to now, like we've known them for years, I never have heard them say, <laughs> you know, we're going to a, a community meeting to, you know, deal with something. So I, I just think that that's something that's very exceptional in terms of people's habits. And so utilities and other public agencies should, should think to themselves, what does this attendance tell us? Mm -hmm. um, and, and what other ways should we be targeting this, the, the population we're trying to reach? Yeah. Well, I mean, we can learn a lot from studying mistakes so on the flip side of that, can you give us some examples of where people have completely bombed this <laughs> and you've got like this list of clients that are like, okay, don't do this. Yeah. yeah. So I'm going to, I'm going to, you don't have to give names. Yeah. I was going to say, I'm going to tell two without, without naming <laughs> uh, either municipalities or agencies or anything, but I was hired once by a, a city um, government and I asked them, it was for, it was for training. And so I asked them, you know, if, you know, what, what precipitated this? I mean, sometimes you just have really forward thinking, you know, leadership who understands that public engagement is really important and they need to train their folks. And then most of the time it's because there was some God awful mess. Yeah. And so um, there was a God awful mess in this case. And, and, you know, the short version of it was that there had been an infrastructure project that I guess was being done in multiple parts of their city kind of almost on repeat, like the okay. same kind of project in multiple locations. Mm -hmm. And in one particular section of the city, maybe not coincidentally, the lower income um, area, mm -hmm. uh, let's just say there wasn't a whole lot of engagement. Um, and so the project was moving forward in a way that was actually, from what I read, having real consequences, like as in trouble like breathing trouble with health like like mm. physical problems not sure. to mention the political ramifications so the project was canceled but the ultimate uh uh what's the word the ultimate financial hit to that was something on the order of 15 million dollars now that's not exceptional in the world of canceled infrastructure 
but I'm sure that people listening to this are probably thinking like, I don't have Oh my goodness. <laughs> like I don't have that amount of money, but also like I, that if, if that happened on my watch, like I don't know that I would have a job. Yeah. Um, it, it's less about the raw number in terms of like how much that mattered to that particular agency and more just about the symbolism yeah. of quote unquote wasting that amount of money. Yeah. Um, and again, I think that, you know, the way that the folks in this city told it, it was like, had we done the work mm. up front, um, maybe this wouldn't have happened. Maybe we would have been yeah. able to move forward on the project and, and not quote unquote wasted that money. There was another one that I, I found really interesting. It, it's, um, I'm going to do my best to kind of explain it in a way that's going to, uh, apply to as many people as possible. But we, we all know that, um, sort of online and social media um, as a playing field for engagement is, is, you know, continuing to expand and grow. And so a lot of, of clients and agencies are certainly using kind of the existing platforms as a way to connect. And, and so in this case, it was a Twitter-based uh, conversation that a community was having. And I don't remember the prompt, but it was something pretty general, like, you know, what would you like to see in the future of your community or something. And a person's tweet back was, it, it had an acronym in it that didn't mean anything to me. It wouldn't mean anything to you guys, but everybody in that city would know what it means. Mm. Uh, it'd be like saying DFW or whatever. Okay. I mean, everybody yeah. knew what it, what it was. And the firm that was kind of moderating that or responding to those tweets said something very innocuous, like, for those of us who don't know what that stands for, would you tell us what it means? I'm not exaggerating when I say that that tweet essentially got that firm fired. Now, what on earth do I mean by that? What, what was going on there? Well, essentially what, what, what unraveled at that point was an accusation from the public, or at least the people in that particular conversation, that whoever was behind this account was totally tone deaf as to what was going on in town. Mm. Um, and that because they were f not from in town, meaning they were from whatever, you know, Dallas and it was happening in Austin or whatever it was, um, that they couldn't possibly, like there was, there was almost like a, a, you know, just a counterintuitive, like how could ever a firm outside of our community get this? How could they ever? And that, that's not the point that I would take away from this story by any means, nor would I even say that the way that they phrased that tweet as a question was even that far off. I mean, I guess they could have said, oh, you're referring to, and then just spell out the acronym and then move on. And maybe it would have been less consequential. Um, but I think that what it, what it reflects is the challenges and limitations associated with any form of engagement. I mean, literally any way that you engage, whether it's a face-to-face -face meeting, a public workshop, a public hearing, something online that's, that's on a place like Facebook or Twitter, something that's online that you create, something that's via text message, something on TV. I mean, anything is going to have limitations associated with it. Mm -hmm. And the, the more that you can study and understand those ahead of time, um, the, the better off you're going to be. And that for me looks like even, I mean, not just testing like a website to see if it works or has no bugs in it, which is of course important, but also like, like let's let's role play a post that's like supercharged and figure yeah. out how we would respond to it, you know, because those are going to come. Um, and I'm certainly seeing some agencies kind of say like, oh, you know, 
you know, we had this disastrous back and forth on Facebook, so we're never going on Facebook again or something. And, I, and I'm not yeah. really, I'm not really going there. I, I'm just saying that we need to know what we're getting ourselves into, whatever the medium may be. Mm-hmm. And then we need to kind of think through um, how will what we say be received. I was also at a face-to-face meeting, I remember, where someone, um, the moderator said something like, um, she said something like, we, we want everybody to remain calm or we want everybody to kind of, um, yeah, so, something like that, Keep, you know, stay calm or something. And so, of course, that's true. Like, of course, everybody should stay calm. But it was about like the relationships between the community and the police. And so that's, that's not the first thing. That's not the first emotion that was probably coming up for people when they embraced going to a meeting on that topic. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess it's just a very long way of saying like it's, it's, it's both the timing of the message, the timing of the involvement of the public, as well as really carefully scrutinizing how you're, how you're delivering that message, both in terms of the medium and in terms of the actual uh, words being used. So you're saying people need to practice crisis communication exercises, even with Twitter, Facebook, social media, <laughs> not just real life scenarios, but online scenarios too. Yeah. And I, and I also oh, want to say, man. I also, yeah, can you believe that? Um, <laughs> I also want to say though, that I've seen some best practice when it comes to crisis communication on social media. Um, and there, I'm not just talking about public health, like a water crisis, but I mean, for, for one thing, we all are seeing, unfortunately, the uh, usage of Twitter in times of a um, active shooting uh, situation. Um, but I've seen folks tweet at the police, hey, we saw what happened, you know, reach out if you need a statement um, via Twitter. Um, and, and, and that be seen by the police in a way that was helpful, you know, or, you know, in a flooding incident, people have tweeted an address for rescue and that mm-hmm. that's been responded yeah. to. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I, I want to be very safe or something. Yeah. You know? yeah. Yeah. So, so I just want to be careful to say that like, I'm not advocating for abandoning the no. platforms that have attracted billions of people. I mean, let's, let's like, let's make highest and best use of what's in the toolkit and those right. you know platforms are there. Um, and I'm not, ta- I haven't mentioned Instagram. I haven't mentioned, yeah. you know, n- next door. I haven't, you know, there's a lot that we could talk about, but I, I want to suggest that those are probably tools in the box, not the subtotal of the box. Yeah. And that, uh, you know, to your point just then, um, each of them needs to be, I mean, you're not going to take a hammer and just like <laughs> crush it against a wall, you know, without knowing what that's going to, how that's going to go. So yeah. let's, let's yeah, check that out. Before we have we- to start, you know, as, public officials and as cities, we have to start, um, respecting those, um, those tools, uh, you know, using them as tools, respecting them as, you know, that same or valuing them in that same way that we would value the, um, press releases, phone calls or whatever, you know, other methods of communication. Um, and, and until they start doing that, like they're going to be hit, hit with these trolls and not know what to do with it. And yeah, it's easy and, and to I, shut down, but shutting down is not the way that that you're supposed to communicate with, with your community. Right. And I think that it's it's helpful for you to mention press release and kind of press conference and stuff, because I think that, you know, I, I have seen some pretty cool like media training that's yeah. happening these days. Yes. I'm sure you guys probably do some of it. And uh, 
I think that's something people have learned to take seriously, that they shouldn't just assume, especially in a heated kind of moment, that they're going to say all the right things in either an interview or a press conference or even a press release um, and to know which ones to use in which cases. And so um, this is not all that different in terms of the significance and severity of the consequences um, if it's not thought through thoroughly enough. Yeah. Well, I love that you kind of put that um, the power of things like social because because it's on a phone, because it's an app, because it's something that, you know, a 12 year old uses a lot of times people in government are like, eh, uh, you know, I can wing it. That's like me taking a chainsaw out of a box and like trying to just wing it, you know, like you have the potential. Or a 12 year old taking a chainsaw. Exactly. Like you have uh, um, a lot of power in your hand. There's a lot of power there and it can be used for good or evil. So it's just, um, thank you for. Yeah. And for sure. And, And also I sometimes hear, well, you know, the person is anonymous. And so like, Mm. is that even a person? And if they are, do they live in this community, whatever? Well, I'm sorry, it doesn't necessarily matter that much. I mean, I, first of all, I think platforms like Nextdoor are doing a great job of, uh, and they're not the only ones. There's, there's, uh, there's some others that I can talk about, but there are some that are doing a great job of, of really authenticating who's responding and really getting a good clear sense of, of it being from someone in that, particular place uh, with that name even. Um, But that's, you know, we talk about it being anonymous. I mean, there are some communities where if you speak to the city council, you have to give your name and address, but a lot of them you don't. They certainly don't check ID. I could say I'm John Smith and live at 123 Main and they're not going to look at my license. Um, And then beyond that, you know, if I send an email to city hall or to this legislature, I can, it can come from anywhere. so this whole idea that it somehow is worth less because it's quote unquote anonymous, um, I just, I would take issue with. Now, would I strive to get as much data on who's responding as I could? A hundred percent. You know, when we built speakupaustin.org, we certainly had in mind a, an interface and a, and a, um, you know, a back end that would allow us to really know mm-hmm. where we were hearing from, who we were hearing from and from where, uh, particularly when we got single member council districts. So I, I think it's important to know as much about who's, who's participating as you can, but to mm-hmm. say we got tweets and we don't know who these people are and therefore it's not consequential, you know, yeah. I don't know. Well, I love that um, we got on the topic of social media because this is actually a great segue to the next question because social media is definitely something that scares the bejesus out of um, city folk everywhere. And so what do you think the biggest fears or misconceptions are around public engagement and how do you help people overcome those fears and move forward? Well, I mean, one of the fears I think is from, especially when you're thinking about a utility, you have so many folks with tremendous expertise and education in this space. And so I think one fear is that they're going to open themselves up to taking a direction that the utility itself is going to think is, is absurd, abhorrent, you know, impractical, I don't know, bad. And, um, and I think what's important to say about that is, is in a, in a perfect world, the utilities uh, position aligns super great with whatever the public's consensus is. In a more real world, um, I don't know how many folks are familiar with like what goes on in a zoning case, for example, but like where I'm, my background, I, I see zoning cases happen where basically the developer comes in and says, I want to build X. So that's 
That's piece of paper one. The city says, we think that they should be able to build that or not, and here's why. That's piece of paper two. The planning commission says, we agree or disagree, and that's piece of paper three. And then the nearby folks say, we are supportive or not, and that's piece of paper four. We never say like, and therefore, because piece of paper four with the public's input on it says one thing, then throw the other pieces of paper out. We say, here's all four pieces of paper and you all can make the decision. It's up to you. Um, so when it comes to dealing with staff as a client, um, I'm often saying to them, look, I'm never going to tell you to change your professional recommendation. I'm never going to tell you to pardon the expression for this podcast, water down your <laughs> expertise um, I, I'm just gonna I'm gonna tell you to keep an open mind and when there are decisions that you haven't yet made and aren't are in a rush to make then uh, withhold judgment until you hear what the public and stakeholders have to say um, when it comes to the public I want them to know that as sort of a, a semi-autonomous part of this whole equation I'm going to ensure that their comments go directly to the people ultimately making the decision, whether that's yeah. administrative or political or whatever. Um, in other words, that I'm not going to try to force a mashup between what the public said and what the quote unquote experts are saying. I say quote unquote, because I think they're experts, but sometimes the public questions that. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, it's true. So I'm not going to force that. I'm not going to like, well, the public said this, but we're going to edit that part out and just keep the part that, where the utility agreed. No, I'm going to give you, a lot of times I give people unabridged data. Um, like literally, this is every single comment on, that we got on the website. This is every single email. Mm -hmm. Not that I'm expecting them to read it, but because I want everybody to know that this is public record and it's data and it's being protected. Um, I also do the executive summary in which I, and the analysis, which I'm saying, in which I'm saying this is the upshot of, of what we heard. And I'm not saying, you know, and therefore that's what you should do. I'm just saying, this is what we heard from the public. This is what we're hearing from staff. This is where they're aligned and this is where they aren't. And mm -hmm. from there, it's up to you. Um, so that's one fear, I think, is that they're, they're going to sort of open themselves up to taking a course of action that they don't want to take, that they, they feel ethically uncomfortable with. And so that's, that's a problem. Um, certainly I hear the fear of I'm going to be attacked. And some of that is I'm going to be physically attacked, um, which is really unfortunate, but, but sometimes it's just that I'm going to be verbally attacked. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons that I get work actually. Um, not because I'm physically imposing, uh, or that I'm going <laughs> to block a, a, a headlong assault on a, on a, an official. Um, and, and by the way, I never am advocating for security personnel at, mm -hmm. uh, at meetings. And I'm happy to go into why, but I, I generally have never been in support of that. City Hall is a different story, but, um, you know, I just, I'm not really a big, big proponent of that. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think I have a job partly because either I'm able to coach, uh, folks on how to deal with stressful situations. And I'll give one quick example of that in a second, or that I'm there to kind of create that safe space for the healthy dialogue to occur and for it to occur in a way that doesn't leave people feeling attacked, but does make sure that they hear what the public's saying and that the mm -hmm. public hears what the staff is saying. But yeah. one quick anecdote, um, a client of mine, a city was telling me that at some of their open houses and, and interestingly enough, open houses often tend to, to get a lot of friction where you would least expect it. People think, Oh, open house, fun, you know, whatever, easy, um, not always. And this client said that their staff was getting, you know, attacked, I think mostly verbally, um, but attacked at some of these open houses. 
And so some of the coaching that I gave them was to interject when they were feeling uncomfortable to say, ma'am or sir, I'm sorry, I'm just, I'm feeling uncomfortable and I, I want to be able to address your question, but I'm not, I'm not feeling very comfortable here. And they're, they've told me since then that like that was, that was big for them. Mm-hmm. Um, now we're getting into psychology more than like public engagement maybe or whatever, but I just think that um, that's a real fear because they've seen it play out. I use a video in my training where, where some of this plays out. Um, it's not an unfounded fear in a way, um, but I think it's, it's a fear that can be addressed both with some good training and with some um, help from, a, from an additional third party who's meant to be a neutral player between those um, you know, potentially angry uh, uh, members of the public and, and uh, concerned staff. Um, I guess the other thing that I would say when it comes to fears is that it's going to take too long. Um, yeah. I was actually just reading this morning about a, a sort of what, what appears to be like a multi-year process to make a decision that on the surface to me seemed not worthy of that much time, but I, I'd have to go into it more deeply to understand what's going on there. But, you know, imagine Austin, our comprehensive plan took upwards of two or three years. Um, you know, I, I think that what people sort of underestimate when they hear that something might take several months or whatever is it goes back to that earlier analogy about primary care doctor versus emergency room. You know, the primary care doctor, you might wait a while, but you're usually in and out of there in an hour and a half, two hours, if all goes well. Emergency room, not so much. Um, if, if, a, if an agency gets to a place where they're putting out a fire, metaphorically, then chances are they're dealing with months, if not years, of, of delay and rehash and whatever. Um, especially on things like transportation or even trying to build a, like a water treatment plant, you know, that can take years more than it should have when the public didn't feel like they were consulted. And so when someone blanches at, this is going to take too long, first of all, okay, let's, let's be clear about what the time limit is, you know, when, when does the budget run out? You know, when do you need to make this decision, you know, fiscally, politically, is there a, is there a, a re-election issue where mm-hmm. we want to try to get this done in the current administration or whatever. Let's understand what all of those dynamics are and let's work on those time constraints. But let's also remember that this is designed to make your life be a lot easier and more smooth after and save you from the months, if not years of unwanted, uh, unplanned mm-hmm. for delays that, that you might experience otherwise. So um, that, and I think the expense, you know, some people fear the expense of it. And again, it goes back to, you know, would you rather spend the $30 copay or the $600 emergency room? Um, yeah. you know, would you rather pay for some of that preventative work and, and, uh, you know, exhaust yourself for a couple of months going to 50 meetings, mm-hmm. but then have it be done, um, then spend months, if not years trying to trying to clean up the mess. Yeah. It's being added to all of our future proposals. Emergency room or primary care. <laughs> <laughs> Brought to you by Blue Cross Blue Sheet. <laughs> oh God. Don't get me started on that. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we know water is incredibly complex industry um, and it's very science and engineer heavy and we have to do public notices from time to time that have this mandatory regulatory um, language. So what advice do you have for professionals working in the industry that's complex who are communicating with public um, that generally have no working knowledge of what the industry does at all? Yeah. So 
one funny thing about those notices is that I'm not sure that the newspaper here in my part of the world would be in business, but for those notices. Right? I mean, oh my God. Unbelievable yeah. how the local section is basically like page one articles, page two, three, four notices. Yeah. Um, there's a wonderful Ted talk, by the way, that, that kind of satirically tackles the whole public notice thing. And I'm going to have to dig up who gave it. And, and yes, please. Um, but it's really great. I mean, basically he takes a part of that. He, he pretends that Nike was doing one of its ads oh my gosh. via the public notice. So it's like, you know, yes. you know podiatric pod, pod, apparel firm yes. seeks to convey product to um, residents of the United States of America. That's you awesome. Know, in order to encourage pedestrian activity or whatever it is, you know? Okay. Um, so, I mean, I, I'm not here to uh, advocate for um, uh, repeal of right. laws that require those public notices. Sure. I will say that I do believe that we need a comprehensive look at what those requirements are and a, and a rethink of, of what they should be. There's actually a sort of model ordinance and model statute for public participation that's floating out there that I'll send a link to that's, that's not so much meant to completely replace all that public notice stuff, but it's meant to say like, we're kind of beyond that now. Let's, mm -hmm. let's come up with some new language. Um, but as it relates to the, the notice, I mean, look, you know, obviously we need to be compliant with the law. Yep. What, I, what I think would be nice is if an agency was able to take that quarter page and basically in an eighth of a page, put the legal notice stuff and in the bottom uh, eighth of the page say, here's what all that means. One sentence, two sentence, you know, hashtag, whatever, out the door. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I've never had to be involved in the dissemination of a public, I mean, I've certainly worked on projects where public notices were happening, but I've never had to be in the room when then drafting it. And so I'm sure I would... Um, vomit every meal I've ever eaten if I if I were uh, you know having to be associated with that the writer in me just wouldn't be able to, to stand <laughs> it's a struggle it. the struggle is real Larry <clears throat> but one of the one of the best practices to me is actually being able to communicate the same message uh, not just translated in different languages but translated no. to different audiences yeah, you yeah. Know, like translated in Human language. Yeah. Right, right. Like, like, what's a millennial going to say versus what a Gen Xer versus a senior versus... Right. I mean, my favorite example that I just can think of right off the top is uh, Nashville, Tennessee was doing its comprehensive plan and it said, hey, Nashville, it's time to pick. And they literally had a four-year-old picking his nose. I mean, it, like... Ah. They could have done like the guitar pick because it's Nashville, but they went, you that's know. an obvious connection. And yeah. here I am, the parent of a four-year-old. I'm like, that's the greatest dad I've ever yeah. seen. Um, <laughs> but going back to the kind of making public notices make sense. So I think there's, there's A, kind of putting a, a plain English alongside yeah. the, the stuff you're required to, to print. Um, but I also think there is that kind of seven-year-old test and grandmother, grandparent yes. test. So you know, is, is what I'm about to say in this ad or this message or whatever is something that one or both of those audiences are going to understand without my having to then elaborate and explain right. in more detail what I'm talking about. Um, I mean, an example that I use during Imagine Austin, I mean, comprehensive planning is one of these things that's very hard for a lot of people to wrap their arms around. Mm -hmm. And so it was, you know, give us 20 minutes to decide what the next 30 years of Austin should look like. Now, that's not 
that's not probably advertising best practice or PR best practice, but it was basically saying like, this is what comprehensive planning is in a nutshell. Mm -hmm. Um, You can go to the website and read a lot more. You can read the public notice if you want to understand the legal ramifications. But to most people, all you need to know is we're asking for a little bit longer than a normal survey because we're planning for a little bit longer ahead than we usually do. Um, So, you know, I don't know that I'm, I'm giving either um, brain surgery kind of (laughs) advice or rocket science, but I mean, I just think um, I get the public notices are here to stay for the time being. And and I just, I think anybody that assumes that they will um, get across anything to anyone are are mistaken. Uh, I'm sure attorneys are reading them uh, just because (laughs) they can speak that language and probably want to show their clients they can, but yeah, you know, they serve very limited purpose otherwise. Yeah, it's great to have that um, validated and also just to remind people that when you are doing the public notice that it's okay. It is perfectly okay. In fact, it's recommended to do that layman's term, you know, recommendation or uh, translation explanation, you know, of what this legal you know, right. And the other, the other thing that I think is worth saying, since we're talking to a lot of folks who work for utility is that every utility is different. I know some utilities have gotten away from a a paper statement or they're letting people opt out, but it doesn't matter whether it's a paper statement or electronic. I'm pretty sure every utility is still sending statements out on a monthly basis in one form or another, or at least you have a dashboard where you could get an alert and go look at it. Yeah. That's a, that's a very handy way to get a message out to your public about something that they're otherwise only going to hear about in a public notice. Right. So don't even worry about a better design, you know, more complex design on a quarter page ad. If that's yeah. going to create headaches for anybody you're working with, just take the tool that's right there in your toolbox uh, and, and put it to work for you. Um, you know, that's, that's something we certainly leaned on with Austin energy a ton because they were the ones that would send the, the bills. Um, so mm-hmm. you know. Love it. we hope you enjoy part one of our conversation with Larry. Part two will drop next Monday and you can hear more about what Larry has to say about our worst first date metaphor, how to get more people to engage with your public meetings and ways you can become a better facilitator at the meetings you do host. Don't forget to sign up for the Water Nerd newsletter so you never miss out on an episode or have any FOMO by missing out on any of the other H2 duo shenanigans. There's plenty of those. If you enjoy what we do, if you dig it, please share with a friend or colleague so we can continue to grow Water Nerd Nation. We hope you learned something new today, got a little inspired, or most importantly, did something that moved you one step closer to your goal. Until next time, remember what one of our favorite quotes says. Those who tell the stories rule the world.